Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, publishing professionals, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart the environment and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 233. Jamie Richards is a literary translator from Italian with occasional forays into Spanish, Greek, and German. Born and raised in suburban Los Angeles, she earned her BA in English from Scripps College with a semester study at Temple University, Rome, and went on to complete an MFA in literary translation at the University of Iowa and a PhD in comparative literature from the University of Oregon. She is the recipient of a 2021 NEA translation grant to translate the neglected Italian classic Dolores Prato's Giù la Piazza ne c'è nessuno, which is still in the works alongside a number of other projects. Most recently, she was the spring 2023 translator in residence at the University of Iowa, and she is a judge for the 2023 Italian Prose in Translation Award. She is currently based in Southern California after many years in Milan. Hi, Jamie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Okay, let's begin with learning about you and what led you to become a translator of prose. I've been translating for a little over 20 years, gradually as, as a professional translator. I was first introduced to translation in a course that I took when I was studying abroad. So um, I was an English major. Of course, I read translations, but I hadn't thought about it as as a possible uh, creative practice or even given much thought to it as a thing. And I took a workshop with Lawrence Venuti, who is a translator and a quite prominent translation theorist. And that that was my first introduction to translation. And, and after that, I sort of never stopped. So I ended up doing an MFA in literary translation. And at that time was, um, I, I was still working on my Italian, um, still still learning the language, learning the literature, and at the same time, figuring out how to find books and find projects and getting started. And at, at that time, it was a very different landscape uh, for translation and translated literature. So it felt very much, there, there weren't as many resources or programs or even publishers, uh, publishing opportunities. And so it it was a really different time, very exploratory. Anyway, so that's that's how I got started. And then I kept translating, I suppose. One of my first publications was with Words Without Borders. And that has been an instrumental publication for me. And, and a lot of translators, I think of my sort of mid-career generation of translators, which uh, indirectly is also what took me to translating comics, which is not what this interview is totally about, but that's one of the other things that I do. Oh, I think that's great. It's all to do with getting people to read. You recently translated Marosia Castaldi's The Hunger of Women, which was absolutely beautiful. What a gorgeous book. But you translated it from Italian into English. What made you interested in taking on this project? And can you tell us a little about your meetings with her? Sure. I had recently moved to Italy, to Milan, 
And I always like to look for new literature and find sort of neglected gems, you know, and, and things like this. And her work was featured actually as part of the World Expo materials, like the, the World Expo, the World's Fair was in Milan in 2015. And part of that was they had a whole series of literary programming. And because the theme was food, the, the hunger of women, La Fama de la Donne, was, was featured in this little, in, in one of their recommended books, catalogs kind of thing. And I ended up looking it up. You know, after that, I found the book and I was immediately struck by it. And it was very easy to reach out to the publisher and, and to her, actually, who she, she lived in Milan. And um, so that was how I, I found that book and her work. And can you tell us a little about meeting her in person? Let's see. She invited me to her home, which is in a very uh, characteristic, distinctive neighborhood of Milan, which is uh, the Navigli, which is where the canals are. I mean, it's not like the canals of Venice, but uh, Milan has these two canals, basically, that are that are also... Um, you know, it's a really vibrant neighborhood where the light nightlife is and, and so on. And um, a lot of the older homes in the city are there. And so she lived in one of these these types of homes, which is always a difficult thing to translate because it's they're called Case di Ringhiera, um, which are, are characterized by, you know, they sort of look like motels. Anyways, I'm, I'm rambling about that. But she lived in this very distinctive, beautiful, old building and she invited me over and I I think I brought my husband with me so we just had a conversation at that time um and you know she she made us coffee and and we talked about this and that and and we looked at her work a little bit but she was really generous and open and kind and that's not the relationship I have with with all of the writers you know I I work with um I mean sometimes it's more or less distant but she was immediately very um so so pleased that that I was interested in her work and immediately started sharing everything with me. Um, and did you get to see um, many of her sculpture pieces while you were there? Yeah, I'm not sure what her older work looked like, um, to be honest. But at that time, she was working on paper sculptures, so they they looked kind of like cutouts. And I I did go in a, an exhibit of hers that was called City of Paper, and it was based on these things. So some of them were. Um, like charcoal drawings on I don't know what kind of paper um not huge so a lot of these kind of shadowy um silhouettes some some human figures that looked a little bit like uh the the screaming figures in Guernica and Picasso or you know but and then um images of buildings and stuff so it was scenes from kind of an urban like paper paper sculptures basically and I don't know if she um like exactly what other materials she she worked with just like Claire I actually don't know. Let's talk about her writing style. There are no commas, there are no periods, there are capital letters. I enjoy reading experimental writing. So I found it beautiful. I think the capital letters help in her writing because you can clarify when one sentence ends and another begins. But the cadence of her work is beautiful. So let's talk about this and what readers can expect when they open her novel. Sure. And also, if you have recommendations in that regard, um, that would be interesting to hear. Um, 
because so so i i feel like a, a lot of the time when you see writers who are experimental with punctuation or syntax a lot of times it's working with very long sentences right or just having no you know endless phrases right a lot of commas and just sentences that might go on for pages um i feel like that's something you see more often or kind of run on um and i think in in some romance languages and, and in italian for sure you know, a lot of run-on sentences connected by commas or, you know, a feature, like a very common. Marosia's style is generally more paratactic, right? So these short bursts. So the first editor I showed her to thought of Gertrude Stein immediately because the language is not necessarily ornate and you have these sentences that are like little bursts and she'll make lists, right? But they're not they don't have the comma. So you have these phrases that the the way that you read it, I feel it speeds up the pace, right? But um, when so when you open the book, you will have something that seems like a normal sentence, but it just doesn't have a period. So then that takes might take you a minute and feel disorienting. But then maybe I, I wonder if, you know, when you're reading it as a reader, if you kind of put that period there, or if it sort of is like an invisible, you know, semicolon or something where you pause and keep going and pause and keep going. And it's a little bit more rhythmic as a as a silent reading experience. Yeah. And as I said earlier, the capital letters definitely help with the rhythm and the flow of the book and the flow of the writing. The book is filled with descriptions of food, her relationship with her mother, her relationship with her daughter. But mostly, I felt that it was about her relationship with food. Did Maroshi speak about this with you? So I one of my regrets, which I sort of express a little bit in the afterward is that I feel like I didn't get enough of a chance to work with her on this book and talk to her a lot about this book in particular. Um, so I, I got to know her a little bit in general, but um, I, I didn't ask her really about what is this about here, but there's a very wonderful interview that she did uh, actually with um, this, this great Swiss literary program that's available online still actually. Um, and she talks about how she doesn't really distinguish between types of appetite. And so if you think of, you know, hunger and desire more broadly, it's sort of part of the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's interesting work on this that I don't know about even at the philosophical level, right? Especially when you think of an excess of food and depriving oneself of food and, and what it means. Um, you know, as, as I say, um, she was affected by an eating disorder herself. And I don't know how much that should color exactly our, our reading of the book, right? Because you have these long lists of food and these recipes. And I think a lot of that is about even older ideas, like Mediterranean ideas of hospitality and the way that you show love is through this abundance you know, of food or even these kind of orgies of, right, you just you're supposed to make a beautiful spread. And and that's a certain kind of expression. And, and, you know, in the book, it's also about ancestral knowledge and what, you know, is passed down, especially from, you know, mother to daughter. And that that is a kind of embodied knowledge, really, in these recipes and, and how they connect you to culture and family. And um, that's done in a really beautiful way. And I think that, you know, personally, I, I think she thought about it, you know, um, and I think that this is a kind of literary expression of that and s maybe some of the personal struggles that she had with it um, as well. 
I think I think sometimes it can be also, you know, depriving oneself of food can be a kind of self punishment for for whatever reason. You know, throughout throughout her uh, her work is very intense, um, and she has another huge book that is called um, My Hands in Yours, Dentro le mie mani le tue. And it's sort of about her mother's death. But I mean, it's a very, you know, it's very long. And so a lot of her work is sort of reliving a little bit in these metaphorical ways. But some of these basic traumas of, you know, her brother dying and her mother dying and those kinds of things. So that's not so much about food, but just the way all those things integrate. Yeah. The other topic that came up over and over again in the book is the sea, the ocean. And I couldn't help but consider this as a deep dive into her psyche. I think it was Jung that used to relate the sea and the ocean, the deep ocean, to the deepest parts of our psyche. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that's um, a really good reference to um, the the sea as, as an idea. I think it's... Um, you know, it's also a very literal thing for her, you know, part of this book and and her work is a little bit um, placing this distinction between North and South and between these very different landscapes and the way that um, they're also psychic landscapes. So the landscape of Naples is very intense, very overwhelming, very beautiful, you know, and, and filled with ups and downs, you know, with hills and crags and rocks and, and crannies and, and, um, these these various stratifications and it's very dramatic and now I can't remember where she says this too but you know it might be in something that she wrote about Milan but you know Milan is very flat and it's like it prepares you for death you know um and Naples she said like it's so beautiful and intense it's actually harder to uh create there uh which is which is interesting so I think that the the presence of the sea is sea is everywhere. And I think part of the whole discourse about the Mediterranean as not only a, a geographical place, right, but also um, a, a cultural place and a, a psychic place is in there. Watching you as you were talking about North and South, I couldn't help but think North being the head and everything below being South. And I was thinking, I wonder if she was thinking about that when she wrote the book, you know, the North and the South of our psychology. It's it's a fascinating book. And because of its complexities, I was wondering how is AI affecting book translations? It's it's an interesting question, a bit of a different angle here. Something like AI can't cope with a novel like this, for example. You know, it doesn't know what wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, and I, I don't necessarily want to say that there's this dichotomy bec- between the more inventive or artistic or aesthetically elevated something as the harder it would be for AI to cope with. But I think like anything, you know, it's kind of a tool, right? And you could probably have AI write you a book, you know? Um, I mean, you can. And and you could use it to translate a book, but you know that that will always ha- require human oversight. So, I mean, the impact that AI is having on the field of literary translation, literary translation, I think is is pretty minimal, actually. I mean, at this time, I think that people can use it as a tool, like act translators, right? The same way that it's a kind of sophisticated dictionary. Um, sometimes I, I ask it questions to help you know, help me find a phrase or, you know, how would we say this? But then, you know, um, it's subject to these errors, right? So I can't remember what I asked 
asked the program to do and it came up with these totally fake references and these are the kind of these are called hallucinations right the kind of problems that plagiarizing students have where if AI doesn't know the answer it'll just spit something out that looks plausible and I think that that's still where it's at with language like if you tell AI to write you uh, a sonnet about the sea it might write something that's pretty good and then if you tell you know have it translate for you it, it might produce something helpful but um it really depends what that is I think um everybody has sort of recognized at least in, in you know literary publishing people recognize the value of human work right um so in any case I don't think it's given people anything to worry about too much Yes, I agree. And I can't help but wonder what would happen if you put the hunger of women into an AI program, what would happen? Because it would probably explode. <laughs> yeah, I don't think AI could handle all the emotion and the humanity within the book. Yeah. Now, the booksellers I've interviewed say that books in translation are becoming more popular. Personally, I love reading translated books. And I've said many times, there's something about the cadence of the phrasing that just draws me in. It's so different and unique. By the time I finish reading a book in translation, I feel I've really immersed myself in that country of origin. Uh, and it's so special. I just love it. So what do you feel is the drive behind this movement? That's that's a very interesting comment, actually. I sort of wonder about... Um the internationalization of literature as someone who sort of studied world literature as well, whether things sort of start to sound the same or to the extent that they do or don't in translation. Um, you know, there used to be this idea too, that you, you learn about the world and you can be an armchair traveler by reading um, books from different countries. Um, and I, I think that's true to some extent, you know, I, I wonder I wonder how much it's true, right? Because I, I see that people still gravitate a little bit to things that they know or that they're interested in. And then you have to gradually push those boundaries. Um, I think that we're really in a golden age, again, of translation, especially compared to when when I started translating. Um, uh, statistically, you know, there are these surveys that show that uh, like 50% of readers are, are younger, under 35. And I think that part of what's driving that is that there are a lot more translators, there's more um, development of the profession, and there are more opportunities to study translation and more awareness of it. Um, and so so that more people choose to choose to do it or choose to try it. And there's more support for that. So on the one hand, you have more people translating. Um, within literary translation, there's also, a, you know, a movement to diversify translators themselves, get more people into into it and um, translate from a wider variety of languages. And so bring in more things and, and showcase more diversity. And I think, yeah, on the other hand, it's uh, a lot of independent booksellers, right? Remember when uh, it was like ebooks or an, an Amazon are going to destroy everything, but there's been really a flourishing of independent booksellers um, who are who are hand selling these things uh, and a lot of new publishers too. So a lot of small publishers and independent publishers who saw that gap, because if you were trying to pitch, you know, a uh, a foreign work to a publisher 20 years ago, it was like oh, Grove Atlantic, you know, Dalkey, there are only, there's only a handful of places to even go and, you know, or, or university press, a lot of university presses have been doing things the whole time. But um, so there are so many, you know, small and medium independent publishers and more prizes and more attention. And, and so, yeah, been a movement in multiple directions. 
Yes, and that actually morphs into my next question regarding the high cost of getting a book translated. Do you feel publishers are pulling back on translations, or have you seen an increase in translation services due to consumer demand? Well, the interesting thing about translations is that uh, they cost more uh, from a publishing perspective. You have to pay a translator at least, and you have to market, um, you know, a foreign author who might not be able to, you know, physically market. But um, I don't, I don't have the numbers in my head. But there are so many books published in English, right? And so something being a translation already helps it to stand out a little bit. It's like here is a work from, you know, Madagascar or somewhere that it's like has a, a little that additional thing is a, is a selling point and often a translator will be a spokesperson for the work and help market it too. So, uh, you know, the other thing is that a lot of countries are motivated to, to fund translations. So the, the countries that tend to have more robust funding for cultural promotion abroad um, will tend to have more translations out. There'll be series and things like this. And that that's a major, a major thing. So a lot of publishers will have you know, a foreign cultural institute or government that's supporting the translation. And that is the big difference. And what do you enjoy most about your work? Uh, <laughs> it's such a broad question. I don't know why that's hard for me to answer. It's very easy. Um, I, you know, I, I like working with books in in this very hands-on way, right? Um, and, and I think translation was kind of a discovery for me because before that I, I kind of, right, I kind of drifted into it. Um, and before that, you know, I was kind of, uh, I liked reading and I became an English major. So, um, you know, I dabbled in writing, but didn't really go anywhere. And, it, you know, it's a way to work with books in a very concrete way, but in, you know, in that kind of private way where you're working with the language. Um, and I, I love working with foreign languages. Um, I mean, the one I really know is the one I work with the most, but, um, you know, and so it gives me an opportunity to use use that language too, um, to continue to use it, especially because, you know, I, I lived there for a while, but then I, I moved back to the U.S. recently. And so it's it's nice to to keep up and keep using using the language in that way um, and keep up with the culture in that way. The, the other thing is that I did a PhD in comparative literature. So, you know, research has always been part of what I like to do. And I think that over time, I realized that it wasn't always, you know, the type of research you do as an academic, but it's just fun to find out stuff. And you always have to become a, a micro expert in some obscure topic for a day. Um, and sometimes this stuff goes in and out, but all the research that you have to do is, is really fun and interesting. So you're always learning something. And that to me is the essence of life, always learning something. Okay, what are you currently reading? I read so many things at once. Uh, it's also a hard question, but um, I just started Explosion in a Cathedral by Alejo Carpentier, who is a, you know, a Cuban writer, and that's a, a kind of neglected classic. It's a retranslation by a friend of mine, uh, Adrian Nathan West, who um, is a really multi-talented translator, and so I try and read all of his work. I'll read whatever he does. And um, I also just started The House on Via Gemito uh, by Domenico Starnone. Um, and Starnone is one of the, you know, admirers of Castaldi's work also, and another Neapolitan writer who's who's big, also Giumpa Lahiri has translated him. Um, 
And this one is a quite big novel, important for him, uh, translated by Una Stronsky. So those those are the things I'm going to Jamie, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And I loved reading The Hunger of Women. It's a beautiful book. You've done a great job with the translations. And you are my first translator on the show. It was great chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Jamie Richards, translator of Marocia Castaldi's The Hunger of Women, from Italian to English. To find out more about The Bookshop Podcast, go to thebookshoppodcast.com and make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. You can also follow me at Mandy Jackson Beverly on X, Instagram and Facebook and on YouTube at The Bookshop Podcast. If you have a favorite indie bookshop that you'd like to suggest we have on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you via the contact form at thebookshoppodcast.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by me, Mandy Jackson-Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly, executive assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otterhan, and graphic design by Francis Farala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.